people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. and welcome to Through the Acom Lens, a look at the Beatles on film. Today we are discussing Going Underground, Paul McCartney, the Beatles, and the UK counterculture. Hi, Phoebe. Hey, how are you, Talia? I'm good, how are you? I'm great. I am so excited to talk about this film with you today. I am so excited too. I am so excited. This is my favorite Beatles era. To me, this is the best and brightest part of the 60s, popular culture wise. This mid 60s period is to me what makes the Beatles not just the most popular group, but the most influential and transformative. Mm. Not just because of their stellar songwriting, but because of the spirit of exploration and adventure that McCartney and the Beatles brought to popular music. And it's so nice to see a film that focuses on McCartney yes. and what he brought to the scene and what he brought to pop music. That's the era of all of my favorite music of theirs, but just my favorite music from that decade in general. Very good energy from that Yeah, from progressive, that like really exactly. experimental, really new. And this film really focuses on British counterculture yeah. from 65 to 67. And it tells the story of how Paul McCartney brought the avant-garde not just into the Beatles, but into mainstream popular culture through the Beatles. Yes. And it's like the greatest story that no one ever tells about the Beatles. It's really mind boggling because it's so important to popular music. It really and is. It's not a super celebrated part of the story, but it but it should be. And this film does a really good job yeah. of it. And they did it in a way that never denigrated John or Yoko yeah. or any of the other Beatles. Yeah. They did a, they, a really good job balancing all that, even though the, the focus was on Paul McCartney, because it, it really is his story. Everyone was given total respect and proper credit, including George Martin. And it just had such a good tone throughout. It wasn't about point scoring. Yeah, absolutely. They were very respectful to everyone in this film. You know, they gave credit where credit was due to everybody involved. I really learned a lot more about that scene in London that Paul McCartney was a part of and what he was bringing into the Beatles. And, you know, it just painted a better overall picture of that time. Beatle narratives are kind of just stuck in Beatle land. Yes. You know? Yeah, the Beatle myopia shuts out what's going on around them. But this film opens that world back up in such a brilliant and exciting way. So let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and jump in. 
So, Talia, why don't you give us a little history of Going Underground? So, Going Underground um, was released in October of 2013. It is unfortunately not streaming anywhere online, but the DVD can be purchased on eBay and Amazon. It was written, directed, and produced by a documentarian named Tom O'Dell. He has directed or produced a rather large number of historical and music-related documentaries. The film's not like a day-to-day history of the Beatles during, you know, the underground heyday in London in the mid-60s. It's more the story of how the underground movement evolved from, you know, basically they kind of credit the beginning of it to the beginning of the CND campaign. It was the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which had its birth in like 1958. People who were opposed to nuclear war and were pushing for nuclear disarmament would hold demonstrations and that's how a lot of these youth who were into alternative ideas could find each other and network. And that was kind of like the soft birth of the counterculture in the UK. So it takes you through that movement's growth. And then it brings Paul McCartney in. Like, this is who he knew. And this is how he became involved. And this is what he did. Then it'll take you through how Paul's exposure and like his absorption of this different kind of art, you know, that he was exposing himself to got taken into the band and then it funneled out into the mainstream. And it's also an arc of the movement itself. It's about Paul McCartney and the Beatles, but it's not completely centered on them. It's kind of like, it's interesting because it illustrates them within the cultural context. This is the summary from Amazon. In the mid-60s, the often rigid and colorless British way of life was irrevocably transformed by the emergence of a cultural underground movement. Led by a loose collective of young radicals, they introduced new social, sexual, and aesthetic perspectives. Operating out of the heart of London, their various activities from the International Times, a bi-weekly journal that no hipster could be seen without, to the psychedelic nightclub UFO, promoted alternative lifestyles and values and sparked a social revolution. This film not only traces the history of this underground scene, but also explores its impact on the preeminent British group of the era, the Beatles. Although they were well established by the time the movement emerged, Paul McCartney in particular was closely linked with several of its key players, and through his exposure to cutting-edge concepts, brought ideas directly from the avant-garde into the mainstream. And it covers some of the artists of that era, and then a few of the sort of pop bands that emerged yeah. um, from that scene. Mm-hmm. The main three bands that they focus on are the Beatles, Pink Floyd, and Soft Machine. So yep. if you like any of those three bands, you're in <laughs> for a treat. Yeah, it's it's great. There's a lot of really awesome footage of like the UFO club of these bands playing live. Not the Beatles, but the other two. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and A and AMM. A- AMM, yes. There's plenty of AMM, so if you're a big AMM fan, <laughs> this is also definitely the movie for you. I was about to like bang on Bang, quang! <laughs> Lots of banging. I'll turn Dripping my keyboard water. on and start going. <laughs> Take you know, like turn your keyboard on and then just like start taking the batteries in and out. Oh yeah, and, like that's... just record the yes. sound of the batteries going in. Yeah, I'll just take my chapstick and like open it. Oh, all the love and respect to AMM. <laughs> you guys were amazing. 
Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So it tells a story through interviews with most of the key people who were there, with the exception of the super famous, like Paul McCartney. He's not interviewed. Yeah. So we've got um, Barry Miles, longtime friend of Paul McCartney and editor of the International Times or IT, co-founder of IT and co-founder of UFO Club and the club organizer, John Hoppy Hopkins, who is a key community organizer within the movement. Founder of UFO and Pink Floyd producer, Joe Boyd. Robert Wyatt, the drummer from Soft Machine. Eddie Prevost, who was a drummer from the Experimental Improvisational Collective, AMM. And we've got John Dunbar, proprietor of Indica. Also, at the time, married to Marianne Faithful. We've got Mick Farron, who is such a character. Um, He, (laughs) at the time, was a vocalist with a band called The Deviants. He did a lot of journalistic pieces for the IT and other publications going forward. And he worked the door at the UFO, highly involved. And then we have a couple like historian type folks just for, you know, filling in the historical context. So we've got Jonathan Green, Chris Ingham, and Mark Petrus. Jonathan Green wrote a book that might be familiar to Beatles fans, Mm. which is uh, Days in the Life, Voices from the English Underground, 1961 to 71. Mm. There's a a guy called Chris Ingham. He's credited as a Beatles expert in the DVD. Um, But this guy's really an amazing music historian because he knows a A shit ton. He knows a lot. (laughs) He's also a jazz musician. He knows a lot about jazz. Yeah. He was laying some information on us in that documentary. I mean, I was learning quite a bit, actually. Um, I'm admittedly a Philistine when it comes to jazz. I know the basics. Yeah. I'm not much uh, more advanced than you on that. (laughs) And did you know he he did the incidental music for the DVD as well? Whoa. I had no idea. Yeah. It was really good. But with it, again, one of the things I really like about this is that it doesn't, uh, unlike so many Beatles or music-related, you know, documentaries, it doesn't rely on music critics. Yeah, it's all the guys who were there at the time, and then just like a couple of historians to sort of guide you along. But yeah. again, you know, like we were saying, like Chris Ingham knows his shit. He knows yeah. all about avant-garde. He yeah. knows all about jazz. You know, he, he and he definitely knows Beatles too, but who yeah. doesn't know the Beatles? <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyways, that's who's in the film. Mm-hmm. Let's get started on it. I, I, I really wish the people uh, that that look sort of with anger at, at the weirdos, at the happenings, at the psychedelic freakout, would instead of just looking with anger, just look with nothing and with no feeling, you know, be unbiased about it. Because they really don't realize that what these people are talking about is something that they really want themselves. It's something that everyone wants. You know, it's personal freedom to be able to talk and be able to say things. And it's dead straight. It's a real sort of basic pleasure for everyone. But it looks weird from the outside, but it isn't. I love how the film opens with this quote because I think it really embodies McCartney's role in popular culture and yeah. why he's so important. He looks yeah. so enigmatic in that clip too. He just looks beautiful. Like he's shining. He's like radiant. Yeah, he's, he's radiant. Like, yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful to see him just like evangelizing this um 
idea that human beings can progress beyond prejudice, beyond being divided with one another. We can progress beyond runaway predatory capitalism. All of these Ooh. things that are <laughs> tying us down as, you know, a species. We can get past this. We are evolved, interesting, intelligent beings. We can do this. Like, it was this rallying cry. It was so beautiful. I've always loved it. it. Yeah. And he doesn't sound like a flake at all. No. I think he sounds like he's breaking it down to the normal people, explaining it to the straights and not in a condescending way. Yeah, we're not trying to create havoc within the culture. We're just trying to steer humanity into a kinder and gentler and more universally um, accepting direction for That's everyone. Right. Because everybody right. wants this. Exactly. We mm -hmm. all have the same goal as a species to move forward. And, you know, in an environment that is becoming increasingly us versus them, you know, this quote is from January of 1967. He's on TV not trying to widen the distance between the generations. He's trying to bridge it. Yeah. And that's extraordinary. It you know? is. That is never talked about in any Beatles discourse ever. Like, I've never heard anybody I, say that. I, seriously. And, like, part of the whole ethos of, of rock is, like, the rebelliousness of youth and fuck you, mom and dad, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> There's value to that, too. That's a very adolescent, like, literally, developmentally. Like it is yeah. adolescent stage. And this is a more mature mm. McCarthy. Yeah. Like, this is the maturing of, of pop music. He's not trying to alienate the masses. He wants to share with them. He wants yeah. to enrich the palette of popular music yes. and help the straight world understand the values yes. and objectives of the counterculture. You know, he's a prophet. He reminds me a lot in this of Carl Sagan or Bill Nye. He's trying to take a concept, and in their case, it's science and scientific literacy, making people scientifically literate through ways that they can understand and appreciate and enjoy because there's a lot of joy in what they do and a lot of fun. And it's it's the same concept. And so he's really reminding me of someone who takes something that might be nebulous or intimidating or unfamiliar to a lot of people and making it digestible and interesting Absolutely. and packaging it in a fun way so that people can take yes. it home with them. Yeah, that's right. Paul is a teacher. This is taking you know, the concept of universal love and compassion and artistic expression, freedom of speech, anti-racism, yeah. anti-classism, all of... Freedom of choice. Yes. Yeah. Respecting Life, yeah. other people's lifestyles. Exactly. And just being like, look, this is not a foreign concept for human beings. We all want to be free. I just think also there, it's really remarkable that he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to go on TV and be, you know, the spokesperson for the counterculture. You know, this is somebody with a lot of clout and popularity and pull and yeah. power, you know, in the inter entertainment industry and popular culture. And he could have still sold records and made money and whatever. Like, he didn't have to put himself on television and be like, I support this movement and I endorse right. this movement. Like, that's kind of ballsy. It's very ballsy, and he's not really 
getting anything out of no. it other than like promoting humanism. Yeah. One thing that struck me, too, um, in the beginning of the documentary, they talk about just how conservative England was in, like, say, the 1950s, post-war. Barry Miles called it a monoculture. This is a very prescriptive life path that every person has to take, and you're going to grow up and be just like your parents. There's no, you know, youth culture. There's no deviation from the norm. And if you do, you're a horrible deviant monster. And, like, just how the backlash against the counterculture was just so extreme. And I think yeah. today we kind of take for granted that we're allowed to be weirdos in the world. Yes. Like, depending on where you live, of course, if you're in a really conservative area, sure. you might get weird looks. And I can be kind of my eccentric self and just think about in the 60s, this was so new. This youth movement was so new that looking different and sounding different and experimenting yeah. with different things it scared people it was considered a threat it's it, it is interesting and i do kind of it is hard to appreciate because again you know we're looking back on an era that we didn't you know we weren't it. alive during yeah we didn't live through it and i think we tend to view it in terms of what was it like for people of color mm -hmm. what was it like for queer people yeah. what was it like for women at that time exactly you know, in the workplace or whatever um it's hard to imagine that just being like a quirky white boy was a problem. Anything. Just a plain old middle class, you know, kid who who liked, you know, things that were not like rigid yeah. and part of straight culture and like we're going to take you off the prescribed path of school and then a job and all that kind yeah. of shit. Dressing know? like your dad and going to a nine to five or whatever. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting to hear them talk about that. Yeah, it is interesting. Cause you're right. Like usually if I'm reading about or thinking about that time period, I am thinking about the people who were always oppressed. We are talking about herstory here. <laughs> there's no herstory in this movie. This, no, this no there's no ladies. There's no um, anyone but white guys. I think that's just who they could get to talk for this. But <laughs> this is like a white man's history of avant-garde and all the black people that they ripped off. In the yes. <laughs> yes. Like Sadly. basically the yeah. history of rock and roll. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I do like that they gave a fair amount of coverage to jazz, though, because jazz was, you know, the avant-garde music of the early counterculture. Oh, absolutely. I think they, they, they did a, a, a really good job of covering who the real innovators of you know, avant-garde were in terms of the um, the jazz pioneers, mm -hmm. and, you know. Well, and when jazz itself started to become more um, avant-garde itself. Yeah, the yeah. Cecil Taylor mm -hmm. and Ardette Coleman and stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, avant-garde jazz is a little... It's a very specific thing. It's it's very specific. I would call like, it, it, it is not. Taste. It's not John Coltrane. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. well, it's not even like Miles Davis, which is, he's very genre-bending and experimental, and, like, there's no Miles sure. Davis album that sounds like another one. He's super interesting, and every album you're going to get a new experience, and he's amazing. But, like, 
even but Miles that, Davis is not hard to listen to. No, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's a groove. It's a bop. It's exactly, amazing. Exactly. Like, but it's also weird and offbeat and interesting and experimental. Sure. Yeah. Like actually, you know, it's like Paul. Paul's like that too. Absolutely. He's that kind of I know. musician too. It, it's yeah. absolutely true. He is much more like Miles Davis, which is again why they would have been a fantastic uh, why match I if Peter Brown <laughs> had ever yeah. given him the telegram. But I that's know. a different story right. for a different Yeah. Podcast. It still makes me cry though. <laughs> it makes me angry. It makes yeah. me want to punch Peter Brown in the dick, is what yeah. it makes me want to do. <laughs> Road trip. That's okay. Road trip. It's all right. Yeah. It's it's definitely interesting to listen to like a clip of it you know, for academic purposes for me, for a few. But yeah, I mean, I'm like that with all of that kind of music, like all any kind of music concrete too. I have a pretty high tolerance for like pretentious noise. You like, uh, you love Two Virgins. I know that. I do actually. I like Stockhausen too. Yeah. Well, Stockhausen's interesting because he's combining electronic sound with like human voices and doing mad scientist lab kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. Even some John Cage, too, oh, yeah. to get down with. But for example, like, I am not sitting around playing an AMM recording. Uh-uh, no way. Like, come on over, guys. You got to sit around and listen to this. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I don't really think that they are so much for the listener. I mean, even Joe Boyd was like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking putting that in an album with them. Like, I should have been fired. Yeah, like, Joe Boyd was a record producer. He was, like, a promoter. He was working for Electra, and he came to the UK to work for them. And he puts out like an AMM album under that label, yeah. <laughs> and gets fired promptly. <laughs> and they're like, "What the hell, dude?" But I, I love that he was adult enough to go, "Yeah, that was that was stupid. a dumb idea." Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally should have been fired. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I regret it, but I also understand where they're coming from. <laughs> all of the people in this were insanely humble. I thought about themselves. None of them were like, well, "I was just sticking it to the man." And- I, I like this whole group of dudes actually they were just like refreshingly sincere yeah and realistic and mature mm-hmm. i mean they really were the cream of the crop all of them were super down to earth and humble about themselves their accomplishments very down yeah. to earth did not have an inflated sense of their importance at yes any time. <laughs> like i really i really liked that about yeah them. they were just like this is what we were trying to do and this is what we were trying to accomplish Well, the bookshop is the center, uh, the collecting point of information and the disposing point of information. It's the communication center. But the scenes themselves are uh, connected by the paper as an agency. There are a lot of of scenes all over London, all over Europe. This is a completely uh, internal scene, so to speak. I love Barry Miles. Can I just say for the record? He's very generous about everyone he talks about in this he is yeah i love him i just thought it was cool how he went to art school art college Mm -hmm. so like art college i didn't really realize until this film that it's like trade school for art and it was a relatively new development for you know like kids who were not university bound necessarily but they wanted some additional education after you know yeah high school level and before entering the workforce and, and had some artistic leanings. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, they were creative. They were interested in art. Somebody pointed out that actually a lot of the 60s rock stars were art college graduates. John yeah. Lennon, K. 
Keith Richards, mm-hmm. Ray Davies, Pete yep. Townsend. Um, I mean, that's, you know, four guys from four of the major bands of yeah. the British, <laughs> you know, British bands of the 60s. Yeah. And I feel like Paul McCartney and George Harrison were like honorary college students. Yeah. George and Paul spent so much time at the Liverpool College of Art that um, certainly they absorbed a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were really steeped in that group of people. And they played at the Jacaranda for a long time, which is like a college hangout. And although George and Paul actually both went professional before they were old enough for college, Mm -hmm. um, probably would have ended up at our college, too. I mean, I know that the story is that George was headed for like electrician apprenticeship or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, Paul was going to try to go to university, I guess, or teacher's college. I guess that's different. I'm not that familiar with the system. The point being, they would have had exposure to a lot of the same things Mm -hmm. that, for instance, John Stewart and Cynthia would have as Mm -hmm. students. Yeah. Well, because in the film, they talk about um, how some of the concepts and artists that some of the rock stars in that list applied to their performance or to their music was learned in art college those people left like a fingerprint of that background and what they did right well miles made the point that it kind of gave you a good overview of art you know you could you could kind of be exposed to a lot of stuff there yeah you know beat poets and jazz and painters and a lot of people that um that play into the beatles story later alan ginsburg yes william burroughs Mm -hmm. Uh, Willem de Kooning, actually. Yeah. Yep. He yeah, was about was. to bring him up. <laughs> yeah, he was mentioned also. So, like, Bertrand yeah, Russell. Bertrand Russell, exactly. Like, um, all people that that um, Paul has rubbed shoulders with to varying degrees. Yes. Um, and and a Ginsburg case collaborated with at some point. Yeah. So the beat poets were a big influence over these key players in the movement. They all kind of felt an affinity with that writing and with that culture. So Miles managed to establish contact with beat poets in the United States, essentially. And he became friends with um, Allen Ginsberg. I found it very charming that Miles put up Allen Ginsberg. And, yeah. you know, like, he was just like, if you come through town, you can stay with me. Like, he just gave yeah. him a place to stay. Kind of that spirit never died. Like, it, I, f- I definitely feel like the wallpaper changes, but yeah, um, it's really kind of the same from it generation really is. to generation. That DIY, like, culture, open, giving, friendly. There was a yeah. lot of friendliness, like a lot of just, hey, yeah. do Because, like, Hoppy, to bring Hoppy in, like, he put up Miles a lot in his apartment. Like, he let him stay over a lot. Like, they lived together. Yeah, when he was a student and he'd just come to London, like, Hoppy... Yeah. Yeah, put him up at his apartment a lot of the time. Miles told a story about how Hoppy and a group of, um, you know, C&D activists were taking a road trip to Moscow uh, to talk about nuclear disarmament. And uh, Miles is talking about how he, like, he framed it very respectfully of his father. He said, my dad wouldn't sign the papers so I could get my passport oh, because we right. were having a hard time. <laughs> I think he also didn't have the money. Well, yeah. You know, he was kind of more from a, like, working class Lower background. middle class. Yeah, yeah, lower middle class. Over for now the vomit. Invisible skull, the fear of bones. 
Speaking of Ginsburg, I loved that story that Miles told about <laughs> John and George showing up at the last minute to, to Alan Ginsburg's party. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was where hilarious. Alan had to strip naked. It was his birthday. He was like fall down drunk, drunk at this point. Yeah. yeah. Like he was naked, but he put his underwear on his head and put a sign around his schlong that said, do not disturb. And in comes John and Cynthia and uh, Patty and George. And I must admit, they took it very well. I mean, given that the first thing they did was look around to make sure there were no photographers, because it's the last thing they needed was you know, this, this meeting you know, preserved for posterity. But they, they stayed long enough for a drink and had a bit of a chat. Uh, but they were you know, obviously uncomfortable because of, you know, they didn't know the people they were surrounded by mainly. And um, when I asked John Lennon, uh, you know, why he was going so so early, and he said, um, "said you don't do that in front of the birds." I love how John was known for taking his dick out everywhere, like a mirror. Four years later. Yeah, right. <laughs> three yeah. years later. Yeah, three yeah. years later, and it, like, but in that moment, he was actually like Miles described them as being very uncomfortable and put off by it. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, in fa- in fairness, yeah. like that is super uncomfortable if you yeah. show, like John and George show up with Patty and Cynthia, yes. and they're like, "What yeah, the they're fuck?" They're like, "Oh my god, no!" Because they'd met him just once at a Dylan concert, like all the Beatles met him and that's where he invited them so they were probably gonna make a good impression themselves but like barry said that was alan's hard year with drinking yeah miles becomes pals with john dunbar and through dunbar he met peter asher and through peter asher he met paul and as dunbar and miles explained they decided to open indica And we thought, well, you know, maybe we could uh, open a shop, you know, with art and books and see what happens sort of thing. It just seemed at the time, typically 60s idea, that we'd combine the two things, the bookshop and the art gallery. Then you'd have the avant-garde in both areas of of literature and poetry and the visual arts. And we could also sell some records. And so we'd have the, you know, the... uh, the musical side of it as well. And John's best friend was a guy called um, Peter Asher, who was in a band called Peter and Gordon. And Peter, of course, was living at home with his uh, parents and his sister, Jane Asher. And Jane's boyfriend, Paul McCartney, was also living in the same building. So um, right there, you had this sort of uh, Peter Pan sort of household in, in um, Wimpole Street with uh, with these um, quite eccentric parents and, uh, and all of these, the children who all did different things. Jane was an actress, a child actress, a child, child star, really. And Peter was in a, you know, having number one hits in a rock and roll band. And, and Paul McCartney was the most famous person on earth, uh, living up in a tiny little attic room, uh, looking out over to the, the muse at the back. I also like how Miles described the Ashers Mm, as yes. uh, quite eccentric parents. You know, because sometimes in the literature, the Beatle literature, yeah, yeah. it's always framed as if they're like these stuffy, like high-class aristocrats, you know, yeah. like, but they were eccentric. Yeah. They were bohemian. They were intellectuals. They were all about learning and discovering new things. Like, both children are artistic. And they both, like, have their hands in various types of, like, art and culture. And, you know, that really got Paul into like exploring the theater and you know exploring all sorts of different things it was a great yeah. 
time for him. music. I think he's kind of interested in medicine too. Like, yeah, just, just just for sheer curiosity and like you know how the human body works and all that. Kind yeah, of stuff. But like, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. We know he's obsessed with nurses. He really appreciates the physician, you know, the healthcare worker of the world. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> even that drunk one who sewed up his lip. <laughs> without anesthetic oh god yes oh. side tangent but like how intense is paul's like threshold for pain oh my god oh my god yeah that guy hurts what himself what the fuck <laughs> but um yeah I, I i love that miles always talks about the ashers very uh sort of like affectionately and yeah. respectfully I thought it was interesting how he called it a Peter Pan household where like everybody was this curious, eccentric, fun, loving, intellectual. Yeah. And, like you had this awesome mix of like young and older generation people who were all in that mindset at the same time and just always curious about things. That's kind of like the McCarty household, honestly. Yeah. And then Miles and Paul became friends. They just hit it off. Yeah. Um, Miles really likes Paul and always describes him as, as just being curious and interested in stuff and just yeah. an interesting guy. Yeah. And, you know, again, why I really like Miles, he just looks like really not an ostentatious type of person. No. Totally yeah. into like the movement and like yes. reading and art and poetry mm -hmm. and like you know he said he didn't really listen to any pop music at all he's all jazz like some avant-garde and electronic music but he said that he and Paul sort of their Venn diagram of tastes was like Motown and R and B and so yeah. he said Paul would turn him on to some like some cool R and B stuff and he would give Paul you know avant-garde stuff and electronic yeah. stuff. Which is a really cool cross-pollination, you know, like, I love that they had that kind of relationship of, like, sharing art and music with each other. Sharing stuff between, between friends. Uh, the day we opened the, the bookshop and art gallery in Mason's Yard, uh, he pulled up in his Aston Martin and he had a huge pile, <laughs> parcel in the back and uh, came staggering in with it and it was wrapping paper that he'd designed in the shape of a Union Jack saying uh, Indica Books and Gallery and then the address, black on white. And, uh, but of course he'd had it printed, he'd just gone to a printer and they'd done it on really nice art paper, <laughs> so rather than just cheap wrapping paper. Almost immediately, of course, we, we became famous because of the Beatles connection, because all of the, the, the music fanzines, like Sixteen magazine in America, ran pictures of the, of the shop. It's so interesting that he was so into this, you know, avant-garde, underground, art, literature, cultural, you know, activist movement. And yet he is part of the most mainstream, like, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like most popular act in the entire world. And like face on the cover of Sixteen magazine, yes. like, you know, not just popular like Tony Bennett or something. No, yeah. Like, like, yeah, like, like pin up, like little yes, girls. Pin up. Know. Yes, is a good way to put it. What an amazing amount of power that you know, Paul has being in that position. it was George Martin who gave Paul McCartney the Stockhausen album. I love that I story. I love that too. Because I love how weird George Martin is. I know. And people don't think of him in that way. Like, they think he was an excellent producer. And people more lean on his classical background. 
Yeah, I yeah. Love that he was into avant-garde music and turned Paul onto it. Like that's so cool. I mean, I think at this point most Beatle nerds know you know how important he was in the oh, work yeah. that he did and stuff Absolutely. like that. But um I still think the general impression of him though is that like he's a, you know, he's a square pop guy. Who yeah. does classical stuff. And if you're like a little bit nerdier than that, you know that he did the comedy albums. Like right, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The goons. Everybody knows about the goons. That gets mentioned in every yeah, documentary like, about you know, the Beatles. So ahead with that. Yeah. <laughs> we I don't like your tie. Yeah. This is the first time I've actually seen a piece of media address this. Right. That's not like George Martin's autobiography. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or Miles's book. And then the other artist that they discussed, who was new to me, I had never mm-hmm. heard of before this documentary, was Dahlia Derbyshire. Yeah, that was new to me, too. Like, And George Martin actually arranged a meeting between her and Paul. Uh, so she worked for the BBC Sound Lab. Maybe known to some of our listeners as the creators of the Doctor Who theme. What you have with Delia Derbyshire and the Radiophonic Workshop is an outfit who have been given carte blanche to find interesting sound. That's all they have to do. The fact that she's interested in avant-garde composition at the same time means that uh, it's not it's 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 got substance to it. It's got purpose to it as far as she's concerned. But the actual experimental arm of the BBC, funded by the taxpayer, hard to believe these days, funded by the the licence fee, is find the cutting edge sounds that human beings and machines are capable of making. Off you go. Just do that. What a license, what a license for experimentation and freedom. And of course that would appeal to someone like McCartney. I definitely went down a Dahlia Derbyshire, Dahlia, holy shit. Okay, I'm going to write it phonetically. Yeah, you have to. Like, I had to, to be able to say it. I mean, looking at my notebook, Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Yeah. (laughs) Because when I looked it up, I was like, oh, it's spelled Derbyshire? (laughs) Yeah, I went down to Dahlia Derbyshire hole. I mean, actually, a, a whole a whole big hole with the radiophonic workshop. Some of it I was actually familiar with already, like um, John Baker and Keith Mansfield. But um, some of it I had never heard of, like Raymond Scott, Daphne Oram. Hmm. I don't know. There, there's a lot of stuff from the 70s, and most of the 70s stuff has that sort of you know, Vampiros, Lesbos, um, <laughs> Clockwork Orange, yeah. Mike Oldfield kind of vibe to it. I mean, I like that stuff too, but it's not quite as 
exciting as the mid 60s yeah <laughs> Derbyshire like, stuff yeah like it was hyper experimental it was really interesting it's like I would say you know she's an early pioneer of electronic music I just, I love that Paul McCartney is just going all around London, like, who are some interesting people I could meet? And yeah. just goes and meets them and hangs out with them. Well, didn't Miles say he would just, like, go to Bertrand Russell's house and, like, hang out with him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just because... <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, do you want to have dinner or something? And he's right, like, sure, yeah. sure. Paul is also an interesting person. Like, again, because of the whole Beatle myopia, people forget <laughs> yeah. that this guy was really smart, really cool, charismatic, fun to be around, and he's intelligent and inquisitive. And Yes, and he is interested in people, and he is interested in interesting people. Yes, yeah, and he likes to learn. Like, he's super inquisitive. He's really curious. Yeah. Um, I like how Miles called him a great accumulator of ideas. Absolutely. And I think probably living with the Astros, like, it gave him the confidence and the language, maybe, to mm-hmm. to know how to approach people. Yeah. And how to talk yeah. to people. Maybe he had a bit of an edge there. I think Paul can be a really good listener. A lot of people talk about his really intense focus on you one-on-one oh yeah chris odell mentioned that in the interview i did with diana well yeah yeah, a lot of people mention it so another person in the documentary mentioned that this was like the first time since paul got with the beatles that he had like a real creative outlet outside of the beatles which i think brings a lot of fresh thinking you know because if you're with the same three people for a number of years and then suddenly you can take yourself out of that environment and expose yourself to others, people and other ideas, then you kind of get into some really fresh thinking and it gets your creative juices flowing even more. I do think that having some fresh stuff come into the fold really re-energized and reinvigorated the Beatles too. And then at the same time, the Paul's meeting with uh, Derbyshire and learning about music concrete. He's getting into John Cage, who I think also came through George Martin. Yep. Anything that might occur at this point that we are making music in, that's okay. It's all allowed. Everything is as valid as everything else. That's very liberating for uh, someone who's, who's looking for interesting ways of making music. You've got two responses, haven't you? You can either be repelled by the pretentiousness and by the, by the highfalutin academia of it all, or you can lean forward and go, ah, that is interesting. And I think it's to McCartney's credit that he was one of those guys who just leant forward. I actually like had tears come to my eyes when he said that, where like, that's just refreshing to hear somebody give Paul credit for that. Like, just speaking from my own personal perspective, a McCartney fan in Beatledom, <laughs> it just sometimes feels like nobody sees what you see. And it sounds dumb to say it, but watching this made me feel kind of seen in a way. Oh, yeah, I felt that <laughs> way too. 
<laughs> finally, my perspective is like it is reality. I'm not crazy. It's just refreshing to see your point of view. It is definitely this aesthetic that I like, the type of people that I like, the type of discourse that I like, and people seeing the same thing that I see. Like yes. that feels good. Yeah, you know? it's very pleasurable. So the introduction of LSD into this scene mm-hmm. is a big event also. Yeah. I remember reading a quote from Albert Hoffman, the man who accidentally discovered it. He was a Swiss chemist working for a pharmaceutical company called Sandos, and they were actually manipulating like mold spores to try and come up with respiratory therapies. And he was always a little disheartened that it became a street drug. He called it a pleasure drug in the interview that I read. Because unfortunately, because of that, it was, of course, criminalized and then all academic research on it had to stop. And he understood the counterculture. He was like, I get why people are into this. Like, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it unlocks something in your brain. Like, Yeah, but definitely for sure people started to abuse it really quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Like, really quickly. I mean, John Lennon started to abuse it Mm. very quickly. Oh, yeah. And to Hoppy's point, I mean, Hoppy says, you know, you really only need to take it once. Yeah. And I would kind of agree with him on that. I would agree, too. Yeah. So, you know, of course, it was... It was uh, criminalized pretty quickly. Sorry about all the sirens, by the way, speaking of the topic. (laughs) That's okay. This is our avant-garde episode, so it's fine. Yeah, I do think it was an interesting point in, you know, history in the arts at that time. Like, it influenced a lot of people. The impact of acid was the same level of impact as when you... It's the first time we saw the planet from outside. I mean, it was it was huge. And it can't be taken back. Paul even said that. You just yeah, don't yeah. think of things the same ever again. But it's not in like a harmful way. It's just like you have a different perspective. There's something greater than me. Kind of, it's kind of hard to judge. All of human knowledge has changed so much mm-hmm. since the '60s. Like we just know so much more yeah. about the world and the universe at this point than we did 50 years ago oh, or yeah. 100 years ago or whatever. Yeah, our technological and scientific advancement has been like. Hugely, so rapid. Yeah, super rapid. Like like in a way that we can't even process. And we, yeah. like, we don't have the ability to process the changes that have been made yeah. in our lifetimes. And, it's crazy. You know. Like we live yeah. in uh, the future. You're like, oh, this little thing in my pocket is spying on me and sending me bathing suit ads in my Facebook it's, feed because I said tr- I want to buy a bathing suit. Yeah. It's true. But it's true. But t- but technology and globalism and all, all that sort of stuff is just accelerating yeah. whatever, the knowledge base of, mm-hmm. you know, into all of mankind. Yeah. So it is difficult to judge from that perspective but again it is it is interesting to hear from the perspective of people who were alive and who were young at that time you know and the impact that it had on them and you can you could definitely see why it's important to the culture for the culture of the times yeah And uh, he would get back late at night to Wimpole Street and he would come in and he'd browse around the stock and and select books and um, just leave a note of what he'd taken. So he was actually our first customer and uh, as well as a a, a financial uh, backer. 
So at the end of 65, Paul brings his best friend, John Lennon, into a bookshop. I guess just to show him around the bookshop. Yeah. And pick up some cool books, because that's what you do. Yeah. And John loves to read, so... John was interested in reading some Nietzsche, but he didn't know how to say Nietzsche's name because probably he just read it and hadn't heard anyone say it yet. And so he's like, hey, do you have any Nitsky books? <laughs> Which is super cute. So they figured out that John was actually asking about Nietzsche. John got a little defensive and was like, ah, you university educated, pretentious, whatever, like trying to correct <laughs> me. Or, you know, like, I think he, even though Miles was not correcting him, I think he took it that way in that moment because he might have felt a little out of his depth. And Paul kind of like chilled the situation out and took the awkwardness out by being like, oh, no, John, like he went to art college, too. It's cool. Like and it really diffused the situation. So I thought that was very sweet. I sympathized with John a little because I think we've all been with someone who's, you know, we're a little we feel out of our depth and we feel like maybe, oh, that person's smarter than me. They might be judging me for not knowing as much as they know about things. Miles is actually a very sweet, gentle, down-to-earth person. Paul is good at taking the awkwardness out of situations sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially with John. He's like, no, yeah. yeah." I was about to say, and also good at soothing John. Yes. So then, like, he discovers the Timothy Leary book, The Psychedelic Experience, and picks it up and starts reading it. As we all know, the song, Tomorrow Never Knows, is based on a verse in that book. Lifted directly from that book. Exactly. Yeah, not based on. (laughs) And actually, it's adapted from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So there you go. Leary stole it from that book. And and then then John John stole stole it from from Leary. (laughs) (laughs) Several months later, they're recording Revolver, and that's a song. Most of the people listening will know the story of Tomorrow Never Knows pretty well. Yeah. Um, it's one of their more famous songs, at least to Beatle aficionados yes. and fans. So we keep, we're not going to go too far into it. Yeah, I think the movie does an excellent job of breaking that work down. Um, you know, they don't, I agree. Yeah, they don't spend like a ton of time on it, but they give all of the salient details that you need to know about how it was composed and the tape loops and how... Paul brought them in and all of the good things that we all know about that. Um, And somebody said that it was really probably the first work of psychedelia in popular music. I think Miles referred to it as a, as a, significant piece of art or something yeah. like it was yeah. really you know yeah he they said all it was love tomorrow never knows yeah. a serious piece of art yeah it, it is it's it a is. really it's 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 an excellent excellent i mean it's one of the finest beetle tracks yeah. no doubt about it oh god yes and it's a team yeah. effort it is often attributed to john because that's john's vocal coming through the leslie speaker but it was all of them and paul's tape loops absolutely and ringo's drum loops <laughs> Like, oh my god. Well, it's a it's you know, it's a drone. It's a modal drone. And they did a good job of pointing that out too and that like yeah. For that that was a really new thing in popular music, you know, that's something that originated in like eastern music, of course. There's so many interesting things about it. Um the subject matter, mm-hmm. the cool reverb on the vocal, yeah. you know, obviously the tape loops, obviously yeah. that kick-ass drum. Ugh. Obviously, that badass bass. Mm. Yeah, Mark Patris is the guy who who talked about the drones and mentioned "See My Friends" by the Kings and Eight Miles High," which yeah. Eight Miles High is a dope jam too. Oh yeah. Oh, and anyhow, anywhere, anyway, anyway I, I choose. choose. Yeah, by the Who. Yeah, by the by the Who, oh. which is also a good oh, a good that's groove. A, yeah, that one is a bop. 
<laughs> As the yeah, kids it is say. a it is a bop. It's no eight miles high, but yeah. it's, um, it's pretty good. But yeah, I do like that they brought other examples of songs that were coming out at roughly the same time using that device, that musical device. But there's something no, like that hits you about a song that uses a modal drone, like it's kind of hypnotic. Well, and I think it got people's attention because it was so you know novel to Western music. Miles describes being there at the studio and like handling some of the tape loops and stuff. Yeah. He said he he was there with like a pencil and a and a cup feeding them into the machine and stuff like that, which is which is fun. I'd never heard that he was there for any of those sessions, so that was new. I mean, not altogether shocking, but I don't remember reading that in many years from now. This film does do a really good job of putting all of this music in context. Even the Beatles music, which they obviously believe, the Beatles music is very innovative and influential and sort of revolutionizes pop. That's what they're talking about. But even so, they never go overboard with it. Like they always put it in context and they always try to like give credit to the other things that are going on at the time and where the influences are coming from and stuff. But, um, (laughs) you know, Miles calls those tape loops straight out of John Cage, which is true. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's Paul McCartney bringing in the avant-garde influence there. I mean, straight out of John Cage. Mm -hmm. He's making those tape loops at home and bringing them in for that. Yeah. Again, like this really ushers in like my favorite era of the Beatles. And I think a lot of people's favorite era of the Beatles, like that mid period, where they were just like really breaking so many barriers you know we can't get too too deep into revolver here because revolver could be a whole episode i mean tomorrow never knows could be a whole episode absolutely um uh but you know they did name check a few things on revolver um the sound effects on yellow submarine the backwards guitars on i'm only sleeping and paul's bitchin ass guitar solo on taxman what it is in retrospect, of course, now that we know how it was all put together and what everyone was thinking at the time, it's, it's precisely of its time. It's exactly where the Beatles and McCartney were at that point. Tape loops, driving rhythms, reflections on drug philosophy, extreme compression on the sound. This is studio, this is studio trickery. These are studio techniques. Why it feels like revolutionary music is because they are using techniques of the avant-garde on a Beatles album that is bought by millions of people. They bring avant-garde into the mainstream. This is where AMM enters the picture. <laughs> um, you know, again, we've been we've been busting on AMM for most of the episode, <laughs> but making fun of like their noise. Yeah, just doing what? random shit with stuff to make noise. They're so chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not chaotic like pranksters. Like no, they're very anarchists. serious. They're taking themselves no, they're, very they're, seriously. You know, master students <laughs> with like sweaters and glasses. And yes. Stuff. The fundamental idea is that they have a different relationship with sound sources. Yes. They make noises out of um, like f- everyday objects. Yeah. 
or they use it musical instruments, but not in the correct way. <laughs> right. And I think Hoppy describes it as like the sound of world and the sound of music sort of coming together. One thing he did say about AMM was that after a show or, you know, whatever you'd call it, I think he called it like a rehearsal. But he said after he would leave, he'd, he'd walk out onto the street and all the regular noises of the street would still sound like the concert that he had just yeah. left. Which, that is kind of cool. Yeah. Like I, you kind of get where they're coming from. Now. Yeah. Okay. So Miles took, took Paul to a, I guess, rehearsal is technically what you'd call it at the Royal College of Art. It's sort of semi-famous story now. They sat for about 40 minutes there. And and one of the things about AMM performances is that people in the audience were encouraged to participate. Yeah. Participate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Audience so. participation. I did think that was cool too. Yeah. Get you involved. Yeah. Um, and Paul did contribute. I think one of the accounts is he, I want to say he ran a, like a beer stein yeah. against a radiator or right. something like that. Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 something like that. Which, that's actually a pretty cool sound. It is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the time uh, I went with McCartney to see Amen, Cornelius never once played a note on the piano. He, he plucked inside it and he climbed around in it and he banged on the legs and uh, I think he did something with an apple in it. And... Um, and, and, and other people in the audience were making noises as well, but, but very carefully um, considered, you know, you, you, you would think about it and then tap your beer mug with a, with a penny or something, and, uh, and it was carefully placed within the other ambient noise in the room. And basically, it, it's quite exhausting, an hour of that, and, and you're sort of absolutely wiped out if you're really listening carefully to, to the, all the sounds going on. When Paul saw them, he said that uh, he liked it, but it went on too long. What did you think about Miles's reaction to Paul's reaction to the AMM experience? <laughs> <laughs> that's like an avant-garde question. Yeah, that's why I asked it. <laughs> I thought it was cute. I, you know, Paul, Paul said it was interesting, but it was too long. Yeah. Which, you know, is kind of how I feel about it, too. Yeah, that, I would probably have a similar reaction. I think he probably liked the participatory element of it immersive experience um well and it's true it's fine it's conceptual but once you get the concept it's like you don't have to be there for 40 minutes yeah it's gonna get boring it's yeah. like okay i got it and it's not bringing you any pleasure then what is the point of sitting there for 40 yeah minutes? well miles said it could be exhausting and i thought that was right. good that he admitted that <laughs> but I mean, you can see what a good effect that had on him yeah you know? And, and and how he took that into into his music. Right. Stuff. It's, it's well, great that he's exposed to that. Even Yellow Submarine. You know, they didn't use, like, stock right. recordings of sound effects. They were the ones making all the noises in the background. That's also kind of like a, you know, radio show, yeah. tunes, whatever. But, like, you know, Yellow Submarine is kind of a... Um, it's, like, all together now. It's sort of like a Trojan horse for... It's not necessarily a subversive idea you know like living together and different lifestyles yeah. and um unity and humanism and stuff like that like i said it's not satanism right um it's not super controversial but it is definitely like progressive uh, a progressive viewpoint yeah in a song that is ostensibly for children yeah 
Which um, is pretty badass. Which is awesome. I mean, that's the McCartney brand. Yeah. Who could possibly be a more palatable vehicle for those ideas than a yellow submarine? Like, yeah. nobody will object to exposing your children to yellow submarine. We're having a thunderstorm right now, so. So are we! Ah! And then we get to the point in the movie where IT is born. The first issue had like an interview with Ed Sanders, <laughs> uh, something written by John Wilcox, and Paul's amazing ad where he is basically offering to pay somebody for a film idea. Yeah. I love this, by the way. In addition to being a Beatle <laughs> and to funding the, the Indica Bookshop and the International Times. And making and- the wrapping paper for the bookshop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and going on tour and like changing the face of pop music in his spare time. <laughs> he's also like like an amateur filmmaker. Yes. <laughs> Ian Ichimo, the Polish New Wave film director, is offering a price of 20 guineas to anyone who can supply the missing link in the following script. The dialogue mm-hmm. is not needed, just the idea. Paul's basically like, I have <laughs> half of an idea for a short film and I got stuck if you'll help me with the rest of it, I'm gonna pay you good. I will pay you to pay you twenty guineas, which, according to Miles, was like two weeks' pay or something. Yeah, it's a, like it was. Pretty, it's a good amount of money. Kind of a lot like, of money. Yeah. But I love how like Miles still doesn't know if that actually went anywhere. He's <laughs> right. like, I don't know if anybody actually sent him anything <laughs> or what came of that. <laughs> it kind of also reminds me. It's like echoes of that come out when he does the Thrillington like viral meme in the 70s <laughs> he loves aliases yeah he, lo- he loves being a, a different person i mean who wouldn't i it, know right being that famous like who doesn't want to not be a beetle right you know? and it has to be liberating too to be able to just like step out and look different or you know like put a different persona out it's liberating i mean that's why he liked the idea of doing sergeant pepper the way they did it because it's like we don't have to be the mop tops anymore the fabs you know we can be something like a totally different band we can role play one place where another answer has been attempted is the roundhouse a huge domed building which used to house a train turntable and now houses plays parties bizarre bazaars and light and sound shows the roundhouse sounds crazy well they said at that um that first rave that they did to raise funds for the it it was like the, all the toilets backed up. I love their spirit, though, because it sounds like a lot of the stuff they did, they did not plan out very well. They didn't, but it ended up being like happy accidents a lot of the time, too. Like really awesome things would yeah. happen. Well, well, because they seemed fairly competent and like they did adapt and they did, you know, they stepped yeah. up and took responsibility for oh, everything. Oh, for sure. So. Yeah, I definitely got that impression as well. I think they often would like learn from their mistakes and then carry it forward to the next thing they did like talking about this roundhouse um first rave mcfarren talked about being there uh, mcfarren is that underground scenester oh. vocalist with the deviants and an it journalist he is so cool oh man it was the fucking road to damascus for me i mean it was all there you know there was a few hundred people there was people trying to make a six foot jelly there was the pink floyd the only band that sounded good in the roundhouse with those weird echoes the shop machine had a mic'd up motorcycle. You know, people were giving away drugs. I, you know, I smoked a joint. I had some pills. I 
There were large holes in the wall and I wandered out under the railroad tracks that go down to King's Cross, you know, St Pancras, wherever, Euston. And I'm standing there with these weird kind of like a brown hair snake painting of the train lights and the shining rails and thinking, I have actually come home. I have discovered my tribe. I'm here. This is it. I thought it was really good that they acknowledged that John being in the suburbs and Paul being in London in the middle of the scene while John was, you know, kind of bored and just doing acid all day (laughs) and not really producing much, like that was the major difference between them at this time. Yeah. And that they acknowledge that John was jealous Mm -hmm. of Paul. Yeah. I mean, that's very, very important. And sometimes when you watch a movie on the Beatles or, or read something about the Beatles, it's like the difference between John and Paul at this time was that John was just so far out and psychedelic. (laughs) <laughs> and Paul was so conservative and boring. Yeah. It's like they even used Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. Or they used to, anyway. Yeah. Use Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane to show how different they both are. Oh, Paul's so square versus this extremely highly creative Strawberry Fields. Yeah. You know? As if John produced Strawberry Fields or something. Right. And <laughs> as if Penny Lane isn't equally creative and interesting and subversive. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, whatever, what other pop band uses, like, a piccolo trumpet solo in the middle of a song? And and talks about masturbating to authority figures. Right, yeah. Like, yeah. a barber, like, treating his barber shop as an art gallery by displaying all of his haircut photos. Run-of-the-mill pop songs, Yeah, so, you, know. you know. Same old Paul McCartney. <laughs> but it's funny, it's, you know, it's like, Penny Lane uses the word suburban, and again, because the lesser-minded are incapable of comprehending irony and whatnot. Right. They're like, oh, sub- oh, Paul said suburban. That's him. He's so suburban. <laughs> John Lennon is so eccentric. Yeah. So anyway, um, they talked about John living in the suburbs, in his mansion, in the stockbroker belt. His Mick Mansion, I guess, is what it is, really. And Paul living in the heart of London, you know, Five minutes from Abbey Road. And everything else interesting and you know, <laughs> dynamic at the time. And John's jealousy, which, uh, you know, again, I think is a massively important part of the story because yeah. I think it dictates a lot of the major plot points of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. You know, going forward. Yeah. This was a constant issue throughout their history, and it's no different during this time. And I do think that John's naturally more of a homebody and an introvert than is often made out, you know, about him. I think he likes just having, like, his core group of people. And so if we're thinking about finding one's tribe, I think John feels like the Beatles are his tribe. And to have his partner kind of... um, assert this independence which you know he's always been an independent guy paul i think but to just really be like okay you know it's not beetle time right now it's paul time i'm gonna go out and do what i want to do it's not like john couldn't have joined him but i think he you know in this group of friends like john wasn't the like yeah yeah yeah, exactly he was not the ringleader yeah and it's not even like there was a ringleader in this collective of people there really wasn't like that's something that's that's so interesting about it is there they didn't have a leader when if john were to tag along with him he might feel awkward 
because as much of an introvert as he is, I think he also does like to center himself if he is in a social situation. Because every time he's in a situation where Paul is the center of attention, he ultimately brings the attention back to himself by acting out. You know, it's mentioned more than once that Paul McCartney was not necessarily treated like a rock star in this group because they didn't have the reverence for celebrity. They liked having him there because they liked him. Right. They liked him being around. They enjoyed his company. And he was an interesting guy. It wasn't because he's Paul McCartney the Beatle. Right. I think that was super important for him and special to him. Um. Which is not to say that Paul doesn't like being famous or yeah. that he doesn't like being a rock star. I think he, um, I think he definitely does. You know, yeah. But who doesn't but like think... to be liked for who they are rather than what band they're in or what they're known for being famous for? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this was a a point in his life where he really needed a group of people who were not gonna kiss his ass for being on the cover of Sixteen magazine. You know? Right. So yeah, I'm glad that they acknowledged John's jealousy. Even though they didn't go into it in in a lot of detail, um, I do think it's important. And also, right after that was discussed, Yoko appears in the film. I don't know if it was intentional or it was just intuitive to do that. You know, I definitely connected the two things. Yeah, I did too. So John Dunbar tells a story that Yoko approached him about having an art showing at Indica Bookstore, um, as we all know about. Yoko, she was uh, quite the mover and shaker, Mm -hmm. was a very, very self-motivated artist, and she got a showing at Indica Gallery. And John Dunbar, who had struck up a friendship with John Lennon, invited him out. And this was at a time when Paul was on holiday with his girlfriend, Jane Asher. So this is one of the very few times that John Lennon said okay and ventured out into the city to do something social uh, without Paul. Yeah. And went to the show with John Dunbar. And we all know the story. In fact, I appreciated the part in the movie where they're like, oh, yeah, and this story has been reported on a lot. <laughs> yeah, John asked, how much is this imaginary, you know, box? And she's like, 15 shilling. And he's like, here's an imaginary 15 shilling. <laughs> you know, whatever. Some sort of banter. I think a lot of, you know, Beatles lore just assumes that after that meeting, they were on. This one was just kind of like, yeah, and then he just sort of went about his life. and Yeah, right. Uh, a lot of them, in, in retrospect, would, would make a big deal out of it. But uh, but honestly, it wasn't a big deal. They treated her like uh, an artist. Yeah, they gave her the amount of space that is appropriate to that history of that band at the right, time. Right, exactly. <laughs> she was one of the avant-garde artists in the film, the, who one of the Beatles was exposed to. Yes. So that's basically it. January 1967, the BBC makes a special on the underground scene. This is a happening, an improvised game of chance meetings and chance events. Part demonstration, part performance, part sales promotion for the underground's own newspaper, the International Times, and part just plain exuberance. It's an expression characteristic of London's other underground. And it's called... It's so far out, it's straight down. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you can actually f- still find the full special, like on YouTube occasionally. Yeah. So if yeah, you, some if you, bonus watching. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you can find it, um, it's worth a watch. Um, it's pretty good about the whole scene. Covers a lot of different stuff, namely, you know, UFO, Indica Gallery and Bookshop, the International Times, and 
one of the people featured in this movie is none other than Paul McCartney. It's where um, Paul's quote from the beginning of this episode comes from. Yeah. So here is Paul McCartney, in the words of Barry Miles, openly aligning himself with the scene. And like we mentioned in the in the beginning when we played his quote that opens this particular documentary, that was not something that he had to do. Mm-hmm. There was nobody else with his stature that was doing something like that. Not that there really isn't equal to the Beatles at this point because they are definitely sort of like the kings of pop at this at this time but um so john's out in the suburbs doing lots of acid and being bored and meanwhile (laughs) paul is like on tv you know explaining to the nation the goals of the counterculture yeah how jealous must john have been oh my god i know because his best friend and partner who he always has had jealousy issues with always been really competitive with it's got to be a really complicated way to feel about somebody right where you love them so much but you also like don't want them to be better than you (laughs) yes yeah exactly but they also like kind of drive you into a semi-murderous rage yeah when they accomplish something that you didn't like god damn it yeah he's the king of the counterculture and i'm sitting here in my like tacky mcmansion yeah exactly bored off my my hand tripping on acid every night hanging out with pete shotten yeah uh (laughs) <laughs> this is not to denigrate, you know, Julian and, and Cynthia, who are lovely, um, or Pete Shotton. I'm just saying that sucks. We all know that he that John was in a bit of a slump yeah. at that time. Yeah, he was in a rut. Um, yeah. And Paul was on fire having the time of his life in London, you know, like just doing a million things, meeting people, going out every night, you know, having yeah. a blast. And can you imagine like if John just sees Paul on the TV? Oh like, my god. Sitting around in his pajamas watching television. <laughs> like Yikes. Oh, there's my partner being awesome. Everyone yeah, exactly. loves him. And Becoming the spokesman for the counterculture. It's... Again, Beetledom acts as if this never happened. Like Beetledom is cowardly as fuck mm-hmm. and completely ignores this major part of the story. I mean, this yeah. is like this is like the turning point. This is the meat. <laughs> Of the entire Beatles narrative. Yeah. And outside of this documentary, like, nobody is dealing with it. I don't see it being dealt with in any Beatles media at all. Yeah, I don't either. This is what happens in the traditional Beatles narrative. And then they got to Sgt. Pepper and the Beatles made this amazing transformative album. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the whole story there. There's no discussion of, like, jealousies and competition and, you know... Paul's ascension and you know there's none of like this doesn't exist this storyline and right yeah of course when they do something super groundbreaking where Paul is the leader on the project it's the Beatles it's just the Beatles Paul gets credit for magical mystery tour being his idea because it was a a so-called failure Mm -hmm. that one they'll they'll credit him with oh yeah because they can blame him for it (laughs) right it's lack of critical acclaim and and yeah. let it be. They'll give him credit for let it be, too. Yeah. Because, you know, that <laughs> is considered, like, the worst time in the Beatles, you know, history. Right. So also at this time, around this time, in either um, December or January 67, I think it was, um, Paul is approached to create a collage for the Roundhouse, at basically a rave they're doing. They named it 
the million volt light and sound collage crazy colorful lights psychedelic lights as it were Mm -hmm. and i guess they asked for some avant-garde music so paul who was in the midst of making what would become sergeant pepper Mm -hmm. uh, going into the studio regularly with the beatles commandeered them one night and asked them to work with him on this avant-garde recording for this rave that he had promised (laughs) and um all four of them spontaneously made what is ostensibly an avant-garde tape which became known as carnival of light the thing that i would really like to hear before i die that would be great (laughs) i think it will be extremely anticlimactic i think everybody will be disappointed yeah it's not gonna be what people (laughs) imagine well even miles says that he's like you know usually the fantasy of a thing is better than the reality but you know he's arguing that it just needs to be released for historical purpose you know it's a historical document Miles basically says, "Like, listen, it's it's not that good. It's, yeah. it, there's nothing great on it. Yeah. Honestly, it's it's not. But it's a recording of the Beatles, you know, doing a thing. You know, we should release it just for that, the sake of that." He also made the point that it predates um, Revolution Nine by almost two years. Yeah. So that's that's important too. Absolutely. Know? He said it's closer to AMM than yeah, you know, Beatles music. But I still want it. I, I mean, I want everything from the Beatles. I want them to release every tape, every outtake, every bit of video that exists, every bit of audio. Like, yeah, like, I want it all. I want to hear <laughs> the Beatles sitting around being boring for 17 minutes. Yeah. With with reverb on their voices. Yeah, I mean, that would be fun. <laughs> that's basically all it's going to be, and that's fine. Yeah. I think it's really cool that they did that and that Paul rallied them all to do that. Like, I think that's neat. Yeah, well, the well the story goes that Paul wanted to put Carnival of Light on an anthology, and George vetoed it. I wonder why. I wonder if it was because he thought it sucked, or if it was because he didn't like that stuff. I don't know. Or it could be because it was something that Paul spearheaded, and he, you know, he also was majorly jealous of Paul. It's Ringo. It's because you're listening to me singing. I'll stop singing. But, you know. Okay. Of course, they acknowledge Strawberry Fields Forever, which is another amazing single of the Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, a double A-side. Yes. I love the the idea of a double A-side. It's kind of radical in that it is John and Paul being sort of side by side, you know, because one song is a John and one song is a, is a Paul and it's like two sides of the same coin kind of thing. But... Instead of it being, okay, we'll take turns. I'll be on top, then you'll be on top. Then I'll be on top, then you'll be on top. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just like, fuck that. You know what? We're doing it a different way. We're both the A side. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of crazy, right? I've never, I've never really thought of it that way. But it's like the A side doesn't really mean anything except that it's something that's competitive between the two of them. So it was actually started with We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper. So there is a precedent actually to the double a side you know what and i feel like this is also embodied by their decision early on to share lead vocal on several of their early songs yeah like she loves you i want to hold your hand from me to you i'll get you (laughs) and george martin has told the story many times of when he first met the band realizing there was no real lead singer in the beatles and that it was okay albeit unusual 
to let John and Paul share that role. Yeah. And let them sing together. Right. And anyone who's listened to our leadership episode knows that <laughs> we very strongly believe, with a lot of evidence, yes. that the shared leadership of John and Paul is one of the most compelling and fascinating aspects of their partnership. Yeah, absolutely. And most of the problems actually occur when that balance is, is disrupted and it, it falls too much to one side. Yeah, it's like their relationship is an ecosystem. of And when absolutely one person has too much power and another not enough agency, it really causes a lot of discord in their relationship. Absolutely. I want to talk about a day in the life. It's kind of a big deal, wouldn't you say? It's, it's kind of the finest Lennon-McCartney song. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of like the most pivotal moment in popular music at that point, in my opinion. This was just something so special because it was songs that weren't quite complete and they fused them together in this beautiful way because it creates this like dreamscape. You know, the uh, the John Cage symphonic swirl in the middle is often referred to as like that's the connector between the verse and the and the um, the middle eight. Yeah. But it's actually not. The connector is I'd love to turn you on. Which is the real hook of the song, yeah. which is courtesy of Paul McCartney, yes. of course. Um, <laughs> the verses are like haunting and sad and yeah. tragic. Like all this Lennon emotion you yeah. know, <laughs> that he, he's very, very good at putting into a few sad piano chords. He dumped a lot of emotion into those verses. Yeah, he did. And then Paul just strolls up, crooning something sexy. Then we go into like crazy land. Now <laughs> we're on the Willy Wonka boat ride yeah. all of a sudden. And we end up like literally like waking up from a dream. It is a crazy journey, this song. It really is. And I love the, the waking up from the dream part where they bring in an alarm clock. That's genius. You know, another thing that drives me bananas, though, I hate when people refer to that as like, oh, McCartney's this love of the mundane, you know, oh, going to work. Dude, he's not going to an office. He's a rock star. OK, listen to what he's saying. Yeah. Like, he literally wakes up, rolls out of bed. There's probably two or three girls in the bed with him. Yeah. And he, like, <laughs> you know, like throws on a coat strolls into work yeah has a cup wakes up kind of and smokes a joint like yeah. that is his office <laughs> yeah. fuck you it is not about like the mundane no it's going into the office no, no it's walking to abbey road yes. just around the corner from his house yeah it's shaking himself out of the haze of his partying last night it's like a slice of life it's a slice of out his of his life, life. <laughs> this is the same guy who just like seduced john lennon out of his depression into like a sexy nightmare right? <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking way to end an album so much has been said about sergeant pepper already you think we're not gonna this isn't yeah, gonna suddenly the sergeant become pepper the, episode, the, the sergeant pepper episode but <laughs> yeah it really it obviously is a big deal and it's uh, you know it's a big deal because of that uh the avant-garde symphonic swirl in the middle yeah straight out of john cage Literally, that's what Paul told George Martin he wanted, yeah. was like a cage-like. And, and we know all know the story by now where they got half an orchestra yeah. because George Martin was trying to save money. And um, <laughs> Paul wanted to, 
you know, have the whole orchestra start on a bottom note and get to the top note, but to take their time and sort of zigzag and get there however they wanted to, like just slowly or erratically or quickly or whatever, ascending, but doing it all at their own pace. And George Martin was like, Paul, no, they're not going to like that. No, they weren't going to improvise. They needed a score. So George Martin did up a score to help them make that sound. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. He's like, okay, fine. I will write 25 you know, random scores and just pass them out. Yeah. It's a, But, you know, it's kind of like hiring a team of house painters <laughs> and then giving them like 10 buckets of paint and being like, okay, so start with black on the bottom and get to yellow on the top, but get there any way you want. <laughs> They're just like, sir, can you please just tell us how you want to do this? It's like... <laughs> Even though we're talking about Paul's brilliance and John's jealousy, this is not to denigrate John's creativity, especially with his lyrics like Strawberry Fields, I Am the Walrus, like the idea of using those types of lyrics. I mean, all of those things were different and innovative lyrics and subject matter for, for pop music. But like musically, John literally complained about it in later years. And um, I, you know, and I think it's because it like upstaged him or whatever. He feels like it. You well, know. that's right. Yeah, I think he he resented the attention that um, that those production. songs got for their production. Yeah, even though John usually got the public credit for the songs as a whole. I mean, most yeah. people don't parse out whatever, whatever. They're just like, oh, John wrote Strawberry Fields. He's a genius, you know. Yeah. But I think John resented George Martin and McCarty because he knew that you know, those songs didn't stand out entirely because of his work. Yeah. And I I think that was another thing that just made him desperate to prove himself. Like, I do think that he had a bit of an imposter syndrome about those. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. And like every everyone has imposter syndrome to a degree, but I think John had it real bad. I just wish I could go back in time and like talk to him and be like, it's because you guys are like mutual muses off of each other. You're inspiring each other. And like Paul was inspired and George Martin for that matter they were inspired by those lyrics to make those sounds and they are brilliant songs I mean the songs are important too it's not all about production I am the walrus and tomorrow never knows those are yeah those are mostly about the production yeah but strawberry fields is a song that stands on its own and like a day in the life although he only wrote half of it those verses are very beautiful. You know, like a lot of the beauty of A Day in the Life is just John's vocal. and yeah, that, that vocal. And those, those um, sad, haunting verses. It is transformative because of Paul's vision and George Martin's work along with Paul. But um, the emotion of it is all John's. Yeah, that production to me is like a reaction inspired by that emotion. And that's why they're so beautiful together. Like, that's why Paul and John are so wonderful together, because they really complement each other so well when they're working well together. And I just I find it sad, really, that in the 70s, he was angry about that, you know, and I think it's because he was sad that it didn't work out. (laughs) In fairness to John, my reading of the emotions behind that reaction from him is that he didn't feel that George Martin and Paul, but mainly Paul, let's be honest, yeah, um, that he didn't feel that Paul was respecting or correctly reading 
his emotion, like not honoring his emotions in those songs. Yeah. Uh. That's what it is. That's what I think it is. Mm. So, which is a, which is a legit complaint. But it then is. I think on top of that, he's like, I was saying this, this, and this. You know, like in the case of a day in the life, he is singing about Paul's dead friend that he's happy he's dead because he's jealous. You know yeah. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> heavy emotion to be singing about. Yeah. And Paul's like, and now we're going to bring in John Cage and it's going to go up. And then I wrote this bridge. And Tom's like, wait, what? <laughs> what did you, what just happened? You're insane, dude. You are insane. It's Sergeant Pepper. It's going to blow everybody's minds. And I mean, it did. Well, and then here's the thing, you know, <laughs> John had veto power. Like they all had veto power during that time, supposedly. That's true. That's and true. And he co-signed on it and it got released. So well, I mean, he, he can't he, retroactively be like, I hated that. <laughs> well, they did like 17 versions of, of Strawberry Fields. Like yeah. he did, they did a, a version that he was really happy with. And then he, like on a Friday and then he came in on Monday and he was like, no, George, no, I don't like it. I want to do it completely differently. That's why they did, you know, that famous story of like they had a that, uh, like a fast version and a slow version. And yeah. then he's like, well, what if I mix them? And John's like, I guess so. I don't know. Okay. Like he couldn't articulate what he wanted. So that's frustrating but again, also not really anybody's fault. So in February of 67, Mick and Keith are busted. Around this time, roughly, of course, I think as a response to maybe the Granada TV special, you know, mm. more prominence of the counterculture in the public consciousness, law enforcement, is freaking out right about now because like drug culture is a big part of the counterculture at this time and so they're really starting to crack down the indica bookstore is raided by the police and everything is confiscated like literally everything and this yeah. happened in the spring of 67. miles said they took address books and yeah like, like subscribers lists yes like checks that they hadn't cashed like they yeah. just took everything yeah they seized all their assets like they didn't have anything to be able to continue publishing the newspapers so like the uh, problem solvers they were, they had to deliver their next issue of the IT verbally on stage at the UFO club. <laughs> <laughs> they were very outspoken about their beliefs and even in regards to the drug stuff. Well, I feel like the drug stuff is what made them a target. vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, like you can have opinions on stuff and that's not illegal but what they can bust you on is is pot possession because it's still illegal yeah and if you go around saying i think smoking pot is awesome like hoppy's holding a sign in the tv special that says pot yeah. is fun obviously the political movement meant More to, him. to him was what's important yeah. and he's like it was dumb of me to be waving a sign that says pot is fun like that that was just careless and stupid but you know what? If they hadn't have found anything, they would have just planted it anyway. Yeah, I, that's what the order of the day was, especially in, you know, mid to late 60s Britain with Sergeant Pilcher. And then you have to kind of improvise and come up with a solution. You know, they didn't have a lot of extra money. Isn't the 14-hour Technicolor dream wasn't dream. that? Yeah, that was a fundraiser. Fun for, fundraiser, that's yeah, right. Because they were like in shambles that. at that point. Yeah, yeah that's right. And they got like 10,000 people to show up. That's crazy. That is crazy. That's I'm just so thinking of like the worst like mosh pits of my 
you know, <laughs> teen years or whatever, just like the sweat and people's elbows. And, oh, oh yeah, God. and people puking all over the place. And, oh, yeah. people rolling. And and the hilarious part is that John Lennon shows up Yeah, with, with John Dunbar. I love the story that John Dunbar tells about that. <laughs> they both kind of realize like, oh, that thing was tonight. We better go. <laughs> like they both <laughs> forgot about it. Like Dunbar's a partner in this enterprise and he just like right got right, high yeah. and forgot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like well we better go to this major fundraiser that i helped organize That's for my so own funny. newspaper to bring it back to life oh wow God. come on man. and dunbar and lennon were snorting acid mixed with coke i didn't even know you could do that i didn't know that was a thing <laughs> they showed up like at the end and there's like a little tiny bit of like is it super eight footage it looks like super eight footage of them there wandering around <laughs> He looks high as hell. Poor John. Uh, how how awful John. would it be though? Imagine again, you're cooked up and tripping balls. Yeah, and you have like a camera following you. Like yeah. that sucks. But I don't even know if he knew the camera was there. And Denny Lane was there too. Yeah, he's part of that story too. So he hung out with the with the two Johns. John Dunbar said that he, and I quote, lost his band. <laughs> Okay, so Hoppy gets put in jail, and as a response to this, um, Miles and Dunbar decide that they want to take out an ad in the Times, um, basically as kind of a kind of like a public declaration, petition. yeah, petition, yeah, to legalize marijuana, yeah, like to, to decriminalize, right, marijuana. Yeah. yeah, to advocate for the decriminalization of cannabis, and. They go to Paul, like, already to make a presentation and a pitch, and they're, you know, worried if he's going to say yes. And when they get there, he's just like, I'll do it. The boys will do it, and Brian will sign off on it, too. Yep, and I'll pay for it. And Yeah, and I'll, I'll bankroll it. It's awesome, and it's daring, and it's, you know, it's risky, but they didn't hesitate whatsoever, and I just love that. Uh, Robert Frazier was also busted at that time. Like, yeah. And he was in jail for, I think it was six months. They were really cracking down. It, it was really, like we mentioned earlier, it was the beginning of this time period where law enforcement was not only cracking down, but they were planting stuff on people. And Paul really stuck his neck out. He really did. And, I mean, it is also true that Paul loves his weed and, yeah. you know, wants to be able to smoke it legally. That's definitely true. I'm yeah. not trying to argue that... He wouldn't benefit from a decriminalization of, of marijuana. But, you know, he's putting his neck on the line. Mm -hmm. And also, um, this is before he ever got busted or anything. So um, he didn't have to set himself up as a target there. You know, he famously that summer also, when asked about LSD, he admitted that he took it to the reporter and then they made a big thing chose to publicize it and whatever right and as we all know he gave that famously unapologetic interview where he was <laughs> like i'm not spreading this you're spreading this you yeah know? you have the media bugging you about something that's very personal to you you know it's a personal choice you made to try something that you wanted to try and it's not really anybody's business but, you know, at the same time, he's going to be honest. You, you know, whenever they brought it up again, he would double down on it. He said very soon after that, he was like, look, you ask me something, I'm just going to, I'll tell you the truth unless yeah. you want me to fucking sit here and lie. But like, 
I'm not going to pretend to be a virgin <laughs> who doesn't do drugs. I can say a thing, and you can come back at me and say, well, you, look, you shouldn't have said uh, you've had sex, Paul, because it's going to make everyone break out in spots and everyone going to run around having sex, you know. But if you ask me, then I'm going to say, yeah, I have, you know. And if you ask me about drugs, I'm going to say, yeah, I have, because I'm not going to tell you a lie. It doesn't do me any good, doesn't do you any good. I personally believe it won't really make people leap around taking drugs because people are, people are like you and they're like me. You know, if they, if they want to try it, they'll try it. If they don't want to, they won't. I think they did a, a, a good job. They didn't turn Paul into a hero for yeah. the LSD announcement. But they, <laughs> but they were like, you know, whatever. Some people said it was brave. Some people said it was naive, mm-hmm. which I think is fair. Because yeah. he certainly has his share of detractors who are like, oh, he did, he did it for attention or something. I know that George Harrison was salty about it because he was like, well, Paul was the last to take acid, yet here he is. Yeah. It's like, well, sorry, George, that nobody was asking your opinion on any. <laughs> Someone's someone was like, yeah, the other Beatles were really annoyed. And it's like, nah, George Harrison was annoyed. John defended Paul every, you every know, over and over and yeah. over again. He defended him in 68. So they had him on TV saying, why did you say this? Why did you say Almost this? Almost like that situation. Yeah, but they kept was, asking him, did you take it? So he says, yeah. But on TV he says, well, you don't print this bit of film, man. I mean, I don't want to tell anybody about Almost. it. He defended him in 71. When it's 71, when they're like at each other's throats. Yeah. What actually happened was the press cornered Paul one day and asked him with the TV cameras and, and all the press and said, have you taken LSD? Mm. And he said, yeah. And then they said, well, don't you feel as though you've got a responsibility to society? Paul said, yeah, I do. And so do you. So please don't print this or publish it. I've got the film with Paul saying, please don't use this film. He defended him in like, 75. It, I mean, just uh, all throughout his life. Yeah. La télévision anglaise est arrivée TV pour interviewer Paul. Paul. Et on lui a demandé si jamais il avait pris l'LST. Et bien sûr, il a répondu yes. que oui. Et vous voyez, il filmait comme on filme maintenant. Et la presse lui a demandé, alors, vous sentez une responsabilité Puisque vous le dites en public. Paul dit, oui, je le sens, cette responsabilité. Mais coupez ça du film. Absolutely. And, you know, if anybody could understand, it would be John Lennon because of the ridiculous fervor over Bigger Than Jesus. Yeah. He was just having a normal adult conversation with somebody. Yeah. And a quote gets taken out of context and the whole world blows up over it. Seriously, if somebody's just uh, talking to Paul and they're like, you know, this LSD is a big thing that's come out this past year. It's it's become very popular in the counterculture. Have you tried it? You had any personal experience with it? I mean, that's a that's a regular adult conversation yeah. to have. That it's not as if Paul McCartney was running around going, "I've taken LSD. I'm cool." Like, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> like he's dancing in a bikini top, you know, <laughs> waving flowers around or something, going, acid is awesome! Put Speaking me on TV! What, I, any movie about the 60s, you will inevitably find stock footage of <laughs> gyrating dirty hippies <laughs> dancing in a field. It's true. For, like, between the the years of, like, 66 and 1972, <laughs> whenever there was a camera around, there would be some long-haired white girl. Gyrating. Gyrating. In a bikini <laughs> yeah. top. Right. They're just, Looking like, drawn like a out mop of to a flame. Yes. <laughs> like, you got a camera? Let me gyrate. Oh, I oh feel let me take my groovy. shirt off. I'll be, I'm so right groovy. here. I've got a flower. It's, it's the 60s version of Girls Gone Wild. <laughs> 
girl's gone groovy. (laughs) (laughs) And they do look dirty. Hashtag greasy. (laughs) Hashtag dirty. Yeah, law enforcement is freaking out. The government is <laughs> yeah. freaking out. They're like, oh my god, we're gonna arrest everybody in the entire <laughs> counterculture. And Pink Floyd is like, uh, we don't know what drugs are. What are drugs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, like, at the same time, Pink Floyd backed off. They get signed by EMI. They have a record deal now. They have to go on tour to promote the album. They're not really looking to get arrested right now. And they really aren't attacked or scapegoated in any way by this no. film. I mean, they're not, no, they're not, not like, sellouts! You know, yeah. They don't call them sellouts or anything. Right, yeah, they didn't do that. They were very respectful. And- yeah, but they were kind of showing a pattern of, like, people were either being forcibly locked up mm-hmm. or pulled away or scared off. Yeah, I mean, this crackdown was extremely damaging. Like, it almost pretty much killed the movement. After Hoppy went to jail, it didn't really take a very long time for it to kind of fade into oblivion. So he's not, you know, Hoppy's not like a formal leader, um, but these people, they didn't really believe in hierarchy. They're espousing more values like being a critical free thinker. You yeah. know, they, they are leftists. They want to live in, you know, a mutual aid society. They don't want to Right, live, right, exactly. Yeah, they don't want, like, a figurehead. Yeah. But it's like, if you lose somebody who is a prominent organizer, because that's more of what Hoppy was. Hoppy wasn't interested in being a figurehead, so, like, right. even when he did come out of jail, it wasn't like he was, you know, going, look at me, look at me, you know, like, yeah. getting on TV all the time and, you know, martyring himself and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> no, he no, just he wasn't that. like that. No, he did not. Like, in fact, when he came out, he said that the experience really traumatized him and he didn't want to be in the public eye anymore. He just wanted to live a private life from that point on and he didn't want to be a community organizer anymore. You know, it really took a lot of that spirit out of him, which I don't blame him because prison is extremely traumatizing to people. So, you know, that happens to you, of course, you're going to pull away and just be like, you know, I still feel these values and I still want to live them, but I don't want to be the guy anymore. <laughs> you know, like someone else yeah. needs to be the guy or the, or the woman. Movements like these tend to require people to fixate on, you know, like people yeah. to listen to. They need to spokespeople. Paul was a spokesman. I mean, in the documentary, they referred to him as a high priest of the counterculture. Yes. That might sound hyperbolic and kind of, you know, the type of iconography that we're against. But, you know, I I think you do need people to look up to and you need, you know, people who are spokespeople and stuff like that. Then another major event here in the storyline is Brian Epstein's death Hmm. in late August of 1967. It really took Paul away from being able to have any involvement with the counterculture at that point because he had to you know, kind of focus on keeping the home fires going. Right. You know, taking care of business for the band, getting their affairs in order, making sure they were going to be okay. Absolutely. And um, one of the things that struck me was the fact that they didn't just mention Brian's death as they usually do in these types of, of documentaries, but they drew attention to the massive disruption that his death 
caused to the Mm. Beatles as a functioning band and a functioning unit. And they made the point that everyone by now is well aware of that, you know, Paul stepped up and basically assumed the role of manager, like quickly. Um, Literally the same day. Yeah. Because, you know, nobody knew where anything was. Mm -hmm. There was money in hidden accounts. Tied up in a lot of stuff. And Yeah. yeah. It was a terrible (laughs) mess. And, you know, to Paul's credit, he stepped up and, um, and pitched in at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've made this point elsewhere also, but I don't think Paul ever wanted to be in that position. I think it's crazy. It's crazy to insinuate that he was dying to be in that terrible, shitty position. That's ridiculous. It is. It's just not, it doesn't hold water at all. Like, there's no reason that anyone should ever argue that. You know, like we said, he stepped up and assumed responsibility for the band. And by the way, that is real leadership. And it's (laughs) insulting to frame it as anything other than that. Yeah. Stepping up and doing things that nobody else wants to do. But you do it because you know it has to be done. That's like adulting hardcore. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not arguing that he should have been in that position because I don't think he should have been in that position. Definitely was not his job. His job is to be a Beatle. But he assumed the role. And I feel like he actually did it a bit at his own expense. The way the movie framed it was that Brian's death and Paul's subsequent increase of responsibility within the Beatles as the sort of pseudo manager and motivator in chief of the other Beatles that freed John up to slip into Paul's former role as a leader of the counterculture. And, and, you know, again, Paul is often portrayed in the Beatles world as making some sort of power grab yeah. towards leadership of the band after Brian's death. Like, which yeah, is, he was just waiting for it all along. Which is stupid on so many levels, because yeah. first of all, Paul had already been leading the band, you know, yeah, for musically. Y- years at that point. Yeah. But also because his, you know, so-called management of the band was a totally thankless job. <laughs> But Paul taking on that role allowed John the space to make three albums with Yoko and establish himself as the experimental one through the maximum visibility provided by the Beatles. Mm -hmm. John had free time to make albums with Yoko because Paul was taking care of all the important stuff with the band. So John, who has been pretty much on the periphery of the counterculture up to this point, um, sort of now assumes the role that that Paul previously had. And we pointed out earlier in the film, they make the point that John was jealous of Paul's London lifestyle and his cultural influences and connections and, and all that sort of stuff. Right before John meets Yoko at the Indica Gallery in November 66, And again, we don't know if they were trying to make a connection between those things. Like, maybe they did it purposely. Maybe it was just intuitive. Maybe we're just reading into it um, (laughs) because it's our take of the situation. But um, I definitely think that there is a direct connection between John's jealousy of Paul and his competitive relationship with Paul and his eventual hookup with Yoko a year and a half later in mm-hmm. May of 1968. 
which of course is not to say that, you know, John and Yoko's entire relationship was simply a ploy to make Paul jealous. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, obviously, John and Yoko get married the following year. They become super, super closely bonded. And they are a very good match in a lot of ways, both creatively and personally. However, I definitely think that the impetus on John's part to hook up with Yoko in 1968, at least creatively, if not romantically, was largely motivated and driven by competition with Paul. And this is an important part of the Beatles story. Not necessarily John and Yoko's relationship. If, you, if you're into their romance story, then consider this a separate thing. This isn't about, I don't care about John and Yoko's romance. This is, I'm talking about the destruction of the Beatles as a band, okay? In standard Beatles narrative, so often John and Yoko's relationship is the scapegoat in both positive and negative mm-hmm. ways. The personal aspects of John and Paul's relationship breakdown is totally ignored. We talk a lot about the interpersonal aspects of Lennon and McCartney as a relationship and what they mean to each other personally. But as much as the schism was personal, I also think it was competitive and fueled by the competition in their partnership, which isn't the same as creative differences, because creative differences implies that there was just like a difference in taste, which I do not think is the issue. Mm -mm. (laughs) Um, Maybe like disagreement in what should be included on a Beatles album. Yeah. is kind of more, more (laughs) to the point there, but even that, needs to be parsed out because the traditional narrative is that John got so into the avant-garde that he lost interest in Paul and the Beatles. And even this film sort of plays into that idea, although they don't really go into detail about it. Um, They don't lean too hard on it, but they kind of repeat it like almost compulsively. Well, because it's not really the job of this movie to figure out the breakup of the Beatles. They're just trying to wrap the story up, uh, you know, that part of the arc. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not the business of this movie to sort that out. It's just, they're just trying to wrap up that Mm storyline. And they spend like two minutes on it. Like, they really don't care. Because this story essentially ends when Paul bows out of the scene. But traditionally, if you look at any sort of Beatles history or Beatles book, any any movie on the Beatles, and, and certainly the Lennon machine, they constantly push the story that it was John's interest in Yoko and the avant-garde that eclipsed and, you know, overwhelmed any interest that he might have had in Paul of the Beatles, and he just drifted off naturally, you know, just yeah. naturally more excited and attracted to Yoko and the avant-garde. But I actually think it's very much the opposite. It's not that John got into the avant-garde because he lost interest in Paul. His interest in the avant-garde was a direct result of his competition with Paul. Number nine, number nine, number nine. Paul's objection to Revolution 9 was obviously not because he didn't understand it or because it was too far out. We just watched a whole film detailing how Paul was well-versed in the avant-garde, knew how to produce his own avant-garde recordings, and was able to integrate it into pop music, which is something that John never really did. Yeah. The first 
issue with Revolution 9 is it's not pop music or Beatle music. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a break in the middle of a pop album. So yeah. it's disruptive. It's like... It's intermission. <laughs> it's an, Yeah, exactly. It's an intermission between a bunch of pop rock and roll songs. Yeah. But it's not within you without you. George Harrison writing a pop song using the structure of traditional Indian sitar music, that is transforming pop music. Whereas Revolution 9 is... It's like a side project. It's an avant-garde side project that ends up on a pop album. Yeah, right? they just stuck it on there because John wanted it there. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a John and Yoko side thing that's then sort of shoehorned into a Beatles album. Yeah. I think to make a point more than anything else, right? Yeah. This ridiculous idea that Paul didn't like it because it was too far out is absurd. It is absurd. And insulting. That ignores the entire creative history of this band. It really does. I mean, it's such a gross way to reinforce this narrative that, like, Paul was just this pedestrian philistine who just was concerned about the charts and making money and we just watched a documentary detailing mm. all of that influence and where it came from so i mean it's it's a lie it's just it's a, a dirty yeah. lie that's why i get upset about it it's not because i dislike yoko ono in any way i mean we've talked about it quite a lot i'm I have a lot of affection for <laughs> much of her work. I have nothing against her as a person, but it is a it's a lie to suggest yeah. that Paul McCartney was too clueless and conservative and out of date to know what they were onto. It's it's ridiculous. Right. Nobody in Beatledom should ever say that. No. Ever. Or never. even imply it. The second problem with Revolution 9 is that it's a Lennon Ono track rather yeah. than a Beatles one. Yeah. Um, uh, technically, George Harrison contributed a little bit to it, but the point is that um, McCartney was excluded from it. And yeah. you could argue <laughs> that there was a precedent for this with like Eleanor Rigby and Yesterday because those are two tracks that could have been McCartney solo. But then again, you could also argue it for Within You Without You because there were no other Beatles on that track either. Exactly, which we also mentioned. But I think the difference, there is a difference between a McCartney solo effort or a George Harrison solo effort versus a John and Yoko effort. Yeah. Because Paul didn't create Yesterday and Eleanor Rigby with Delia Derbyshire. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that's the real problem because Paul didn't show up with Delia one day after he visited her and like shoved John Lennon aside and declared Delia his true partner. And if he did, everyone would demand to know what the hell happened between Lennon McCartney, because that's that's... aggressive. Virtually every book and article claims that from the moment John and Yoko hooked up, Yoko replaced McCartney as John's collaborator, which by the way is bullshit because John goes on to make three more Beatle albums after he hooks up with Yoko. (laughs) But the point is that their collaboration and John's forcing Yoko into the Beatles is aggressive and is definitely, in my opinion, directed at Paul. So much so that, like I said, every article and book makes that point without Mm -hmm. ever questioning why John is doing it. Yeah. They literally make that point that Ono replaced McCartney as John's collaborator. But they don't ever explain or even question why he's doing that. For instance, in this film, uh, Petras described Revolution as angry multiple times. Like He kept saying angry, angry. Yeah. 
it's <laughs> furious. It's angry. You know? yeah. Like, what is John so angry about? Like, why is he so angry? Right. And why is he using, why is he using avant-garde and his new girlfriend to express that anger on yeah. a Beatles album, which he's excluding Paul from? In a field that Paul had previously brought into the Beatles. Yeah. John's interest in the avant-garde does not extend beyond his tenure with the Beatles. And That's even true. this film points that out. Yes. They very succinctly point out that as soon as the Beatles broke up, John Lennon goes back to pop and rock. So was a two-year like alleged infatuation with the avant-garde worth destroying the Beatles for? Like that doesn't make any sense. Why does everybody accept that as a reasonable answer? <laughs> I destroyed the band so I could make the three albums that I already made when the Beatles were still together. Like what? Paul busying himself with trying to keep the band together, with coming up with projects that's yeah. moving them forward, that is keeping them at the top of the charts, you know, that is keeping yeah. them relevant. That allowed John the space to make mm -hmm. three albums with Yoko and establish mm -hmm. himself as the experimental one. And it, it was through the high profile visibility of the Beatles that he was allowed to do that. Because let's be honest, those John and Yoko avant-garde records from the 60s did not sell a lot of copies, yeah. but everybody knows about them. They were extremely valuable to John's reputation, regardless of the fact that, like, almost nobody's heard them. Like, nobody, almost yeah. no one has <laughs> listened to any of those albums all the way through, including Beatle fans, including John Lennon fans. Like, probably mm. most of them have not listened to the wedding album all the way through. Yeah. Uh, again, all three of those avant-garde albums are made during the Beatles era. Like we said, the, the film does point out that John Lennon quickly reverts to, you know, traditional pop and rock as soon as, basically as soon as the Beatles are broken up. Yeah. Um, although they do note that John and Yoko retain their counterculture status by remaining affiliated with the anti-war movement. Yeah. And leftist politics in general for a few years after that. Yeah. Um, and then unfortunately... Because Paul becomes preoccupied with holding the Beatles together, he eventually becomes associated with that and increasingly becomes labeled as just being like the pop Beatle as opposed to the naked Beatle, right? <laughs> like in yeah. the late 60s. John, you know, like John is the bed-in Beatle and the peace activist and, <laughs> and Paul's just like the pop one trying to hold the band together. Yeah. Which is a terrible resolution to that amazing story that we just watched. It's a fucked up way for it to end, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Like, that would be one of the very few criticisms I have. <laughs> Again, like you said, it's not this film's job to explain the end of the Beatles, but I just wish yeah, yeah. that they wouldn't have, because they really focused hard on, like, Paul becoming a producer for Mary Hopkin. They were like, yeah, so Paul went back into the entertainment industry and then so John and Yoko were these counterculture mavens. And it's like, well, that's kind of a gross oversimplification. I just kind of wish they hadn't said it at all if they were going to say anything about it. And that would be really my only like gripe about the whole movie, if I could change anything about it. But like they kind of redeem themselves. Yeah, the I mean, I, I, I feel what you're saying. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, you know, like it yeah. made me kind of mad. Yeah, it made me sad. And then, <laughs> and then I watched it again and I was like, okay, well, they didn't really 
they didn't really issue a huge value judgment on it. They just yeah, kind they of just said kind of... that like the weirder and the crazier John and Yoko got in the at, towards the end of the Beatles, the more the more sort of mainstream Paul remained. But again, Paul kind of has to do that to, as a counterweight to John and Yoko's craziness at the end of the right. Beatles. If the, the band's going to stay together, this movie actually was really really thought provoking for me in that in that regard because I, mm-hmm. I had never really thought about how much Brian's death and Paul's unfortunate, you know, position of of extra responsibility of trying to keep in the band together, like how much that did kind of force him to be less weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when yeah. when things were stable, he was He had freedom. He did, and he and yeah. he was he was the pioneer. I mean, he really was the mm-hmm. the counterculture pioneer, the avant garde pioneer of the Beatles. And he, you know, he was the hunter at that yeah. time. He, you know, he was forced into. A, I mean, he wasn't. He could have walked away from the Beatles. He could have been like, "Oh well, Brian's dead. Well, fuck you guys. If you guys aren't going to contribute to, I'm not going to corral everybody." But he right. chose to do that because he wanted to keep the Beatles going. And thank you, by the way, Paul. We all like the White Album and Abbey <laughs> Road and Magical Mystery Tour and Let It yeah. Be and Yellow We're Submarine. Like, albums. thank you for all that. I also think because Paul's identity as a hit maker and like a purveyor of pop music is so strong. I mean, he literally might be. I think he is the all-time most successful pop singer-songwriter, yeah. right? Yeah. And John's association with Yoko, the avant-garde artist, is likewise so strong that it just, it made it super easy to divide and classify them that way. Those identities are so set in stone that it's like the first thing that people know about them. So it's easy to divide them and classify them as opposite ends of the spectrum and to fall into these quick stereotypes, even though the reality is obviously nowhere near that. Yeah. Nowhere near that. I mean, John Lennon was a pop singer. I mean, he yeah. he made pop music. Every single success he ever had was in pop music. I mean, again, he made three avant-garde one? albums, but they weren't successful, and nobody likes them, you know, except <laughs> for like dorks like me, you know. I really did. I thought the movie was super thought-provoking about this particular topic and about you know, again, Paul's legacy because. He will forever be known as a master of pop music. Yeah. Because he is. Both things can be true. Paul McCartney is a weirdo and an innovator and an experimenter and a mad scientist in his music lab, you know, and he loves weird shit and he's crazy. Like he's just, and then he's also able to make pop songs that are remembered for hundreds of years. Like he's perhaps made more accessible mainstream pop music than anybody in the modern era, like anybody in the past 150 years. Yeah. And yet he is so much more than that. It sounds crazy to say that. And like, listen, you know, nowadays it is very in vogue to, you know, shine the light on other people in the Beatles world, right? George Harrison Brian Epstein, Yoko Ono, Stuart Sutcliffe, for God's sake, you know, like people are desperate to champion these people that they feel, you know, there's more to learn about. And and all of that's true. And they all deserve 
the attention and they all deserve their day in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And Ringo's getting more attention now because he deserves that as well. Yeah. And I think sometimes people are like, why in the world would you focus on the most successful celebrated person in the Beatles? And the reason is because (laughs) no matter (laughs) how famous and how acclaimed he is for making fantastic pop music, we also don't acknowledge and talk about the innovations that he brought to popular music and how he changed the face of music. I I just think it's well past time that we appreciate Paul for what he truly is. Yeah. And, and celebrate him for what he truly brings to popular music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, I'm not saying he needs more awards or more gold stars. Or more money or whatever. Or more money. Yeah, exactly. I am not trying to give him more money and gold stars. I want to talk about the interesting things (laughs) about Beatles music and McCartney music that nobody is talking about. You know, it deserves to have a light shined on it. We all know he writes great melodies and we all know he's a hit maker. But what we're talking about is being an innovator and an explorer and an ambassador to the mainstream, not just how he mastered pop, but Mm -hmm. how he revolutionized pop. Yes. That's what I want every Beatles book from this point forward to tell me about. Yeah. And if they don't, I'm not buying them. Agree. Agree. (laughs) I am officially uninterested in any version of the Beatles story that does not discuss that. Yes. They do um, at the end, too. They do bring it home in a nice way, where basically they say that McCartney's heart has always remained in the counterculture to this day. You know, because they were like, yeah, sure, the Beatles broke up, and he wasn't directly involved in, like, a counterculture underground movement anymore, but who, at the age of almost 40, would make a synthesizer album like McCartney too? You know, like, he's still pushing the envelope, and he's still an explorer and an ambassador going forward, They, you know, and they bring the fireman into it. You know, I just thought it was a very fitting way to wrap up the story, and again, McCartney is a leader of musical innovation. That's right. I I really do think he is the godfather to, you know, I don't even know what you'd call it, avant pop or indie pop. Lo-fi, symphonic Baroque pop, (laughs) (laughs) electro pop. These genres came into the mainstream after he made albums with these styles before they had a name. So he is like the grandfather the grand dude of these genres. <laughs> right. <laughs> and let's not forget, sampling and looping is still extremely important to this day in all genres of popular music. He wasn't an avant-garde pioneer or even an avant-garde artist, but he was the first to fuse a masterful pop sensibility with avant-garde techniques and make it digestible to the a masses. mass audience. Yeah. And that is hugely important and he deserves recognition for it. Yeah. I we wouldn't have so much of the amazing music we have today if not for McCartney. They've got all these rules for everything, rules of how to live, how to paint, how to make music. And it's just not true anymore, you know. They don't, they don't work all those rules because you can't apply them because it means then that you're assuming that you know it all and we don't know it all yet. 
And so all in all of this gang of people from International Times, Indica and the whole scene, you know, is trying to do, is trying to see where we are now and see what we've got around us, see any mistakes we've made, straighten them out. <laughs> you know, it's just a straightforward endeavor kind of thing, you know, just to do something. Yeah. Other than what's been done before, because what's been done before isn't necessarily the answer. There could be another answer, you know. They're talking about things that are a bit new, you know, and they're talking about things which people don't really know too much about yet. So next time you you see the word, any word, any any new strange word like psychedelic, you know, drugs, the whole bit, you know, freak out music and all of that, don't immediately take it as that, you know, because your first reaction's got to be one of fear, you know. If you don't know anything about it, you can sort of trust that it's probably going to be all right. And it's probably not that bad. Because, like, it's human beings doing it, and you know vaguely what human beings do. And that's true, you know. You can trust to the fact that things are generally not as bad as you make them out to be. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labeled uh, impractical or contrary to human nature, as if there were only one human nature. But fundamental changes can clearly be made. We're surrounded by them. The old appeals to racial, sexual, religious chauvinism and to rabid nationalist fervor are beginning not to work. A new consciousness is developing which sees the Earth as a single organism and recognizes that an organism at war with itself is doomed. We are one planet. We hope you all enjoyed this episode of Another Kind of Mind. We've created a Spotify playlist as a companion to this episode, which will be linked to in the show notes as well as on our social media, so be sure to check it out. We also want to say hello and thank you to all our loyal and new listeners. If you enjoy Another Kind of Mind, we'd really appreciate a positive rating and or review on our iTunes page, as it can help more listeners find us. Thanks again to everyone for your feedback and continued support. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at ACOM Podcast. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. Please stay tuned for more episodes in our Through the ACOM Lens series, as well as other exciting Beatle-related topics.